0: Hello, my name is Magnus Rina and this is the John Sando Books Podcast. Today I'm joined by Olivia Lang for the publication of her new book, Everybody, a book about freedom. I first encountered Olivia's work with her book, The Trip to Echo Spring, where she set out across America to examine the link between alcohol and writing. All of her books share the same roaming curiosity and intimacy, always meandering between her own life and her various subject matters. Her new book, Everybody, takes this even further. How? Well, that's what we're here to talk about. So, Olivia, welcome, and thank you very much for coming on.
1: What a lovely introduction. I liked it very much.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to start because your book is... It's unusual because it's a kind of spliced biography of a whole cast of characters. There's Susan Sontag, Christopher Isherwood, Agnes Martin and many others, Kate Bush as well. But running through it all is, is you, your encountering of these people and their ideas in in your late teens and twenties, I wonder if you could start by talking about what it was like to write on a lineup of figures who seem to have been so inspiring for you.
1: Um, that's an interesting question. I think that sort of is my mo in writing. Anyway, I tend to assemble a cast and have a subject that I want to interrogate, and then. Use their work and my own experience as as a way in, so my experience might be um you know the um inciting factor for for my interest, but then I want to come at the subject from many different angles and many different sort of tacks so certainly with the alcoholism book or with the book about loneliness that that was the way through um and with this one, the subject was the body the body's um Difficulties, the body's states of peril, but also the body's states of power. And you're right; it is a cast of people that I've been thinking about since my twenties. It's it's a book that has its roots really in the 1990s. Um, so in some ways, they were people I've been grappling about, grappling with, and thinking about for 20, 25 years. Anna Mendieta and Wilhelm Reich, in particular, I've been thinking about for a long time. But then other characters inevitably come in at the last minute that. This has happened with every book I've written, that somebody sort of shoulders their way in unexpectedly and um, with this book, Bayard Rustin wasn't there until really towards the end. Um, so that's exciting too, to have people that I haven't been thinking about a lot but who have been thinking about the same ideas and to sort of encounter them and, and um, go further with them is, is always one of the great pleasures of writing a book.
0: One of the very first lines in Funny Weather your collection of essays is, what drives all these essays is a long-standing interest in how a person can be free, and especially in how to find a freedom that is shareable and not dependent upon the oppression or exclusion of other people. You seem to be kind of teeing yourself up for this book, and there are clearly ideas which have been preoccupying you for a while. I I wonder what the research and writing process was like. I mean, was it born out of years of existing material or did it come into being as a new, discrete project?
1: It's interesting, actually, because I think Funny Weather, especially the essays that I wrote for Freeze that were called Funny Weather, that set of, I don't know, maybe 20 essays, I was very much writing my way into everybody with those essays. So I was thinking about those sort of themes of, especially violence. Um, But the research, I think I'd been assembling the research in some ways really since the 90s. Um, it's the book that's got the longest roots into my life. But at the same time, it did very much emerge as a book idea out of The Lonely City, that when I finished The Lonely City, it seemed to me that there were a lot of stories about bodies in that book. You know, Andy Warhol's wounded body, David Wonorovich's sick body, that I couldn't quite address within that book. I talked about them, but I it, it made me feel that there was more to be said about bodies. And then... 2015 2016 it was this moment of entering into a new sort of world of violence and peril I think the the refugee crisis Brexit the rise of Donald Trump and the, the global rise of the far right meant that it felt as if bodily lives were in peril in a in a way that they hadn't been for a long time and I wanted to really tur- turn to that by way of the 20th century. So that's when I started going back and reading a lot about Weimar Berlin um, the Holocaust genocide. So th- there was a lot of reading that didn't necessarily even find its way into the book in its final form, but sort of informed it. And that process was going on while I was writing Funny Weather and Crudo as well. So this, this book goes back much further. It really goes to the very end of Lonely City.
0: There's so much to talk about here. And what you're touching on there is it's so wide ranging Um, I think it's important to acknowledge where you lay the foundations of the book and that's with the body as a physical thing. You introduce it through a a duality, basically, both as a source of freedom, as forces for change, you call them, in themselves, and as the objects in peril, the reasons for which a person's freedom might be stripped away. I wonder if you could talk about that tension.
1: Yeah, that sums it up beautifully. Um, I think... That that was really the dynamics that I wanted to address, the, the sort of oscillating fact of our bodies in the world, that we exist as individuals, but we also exist in categories that we're forcibly inserted into and that are often extremely uncomfortable or are the site of immense violence and suffering. And I wanted to think about that that aspect of embodied existence, how hard that side of living inside a human body can be but also just the um, the native texture of what it's like to live in a body that we are subject to all kinds of vulnerabilities just because of our materiality because we get ill we age eventually we die these are the four noble truths of buddhism this is the sort of foundational experience of what it means to live inside a human form that isn't permanent and I wanted to address that, but also to think about it politically and historically as well as the ways that certain kinds of bodies, women's bodies, bodies of colour, queer bodies have been treated through history and particularly through recent history.
0: I think it's really interesting how you construct this image of a body at its most oppressed as a thing that's reduced to the status of an object. And I find that interesting because in art, especially sculpture, objects are used to make Ideas which are immaterial and abstract into palpable and tangible things into repositories for human experience and so that same logic Can Mm -hmm. be applied to bodies which are oppressed and reduced to objecthood not just in a passive sense, but as fragile repositories for memory and trauma you call it at one point a storage unit for emotional distress I think the framework of this book always returning to bodies as the real living units of history is really powerful.
1: You know, that's really interesting talking about sculpture because the origin of this book really was an afternoon where I was in the Met in New York and I was wandering through the Egyptian galleries and I came across this um, sculpture of a boy and it was obviously of a you know young man in the peak of health with sort of beautiful six-pack and perfect lips. But at the same time, the, the sculpture itself had been shattered sort of cleaved down the middle and I was missing it it was wounded by its passage through time and that was where I just thought oh this this captures the thing that I want to address this sense of the body as both um, extraordinarily resilient and terrifyingly vulnerable so the sense of it as thing and not thing was was there from the very beginning.
0: At the beginning there's that really moving and quite intimate passage where you're trying to come to terms with this disjuncture basically between the mind and the body and and how it's so slippery and ungraspable and no one really understands it. But th- there is something caring and sympathetic about the way that you write all that and the way that you write the book. You trained in herbal medicine and treated patients yourself and your tutor called herbal medicine narrative medicine. And I think the the book almost subscribes to that too Did did writing it have a therapeutic quality? Did it draw out a different emotional energy to the other books you've written?
1: That's very interesting as well. Um, I don't know if it had a therapeutic effect. I think I wrote it out of a sense of political despair and that despair was sort of assuaged by the sense of the ongoingness of struggle, its ongoing nature, its trans historical nature, so that that was a kind of comfort, but I think really it's more a kind of sympathy for the human condition which i I think I felt anyway as a as a practitioner that people would come and people would unfold the stories of their bodily distress, and their bodily distress would inevitably be emotional as well, political as well, social as well. It would involve all of those factors. So I I had that sense that we are carrying around so much inside our bodies and that that is a point of contact, really, that almost allows us to escape these sort of political binaries that we're often trapped in at the moment, that kind of echo chamber of right and left that can't find any common ground or any kind of conversation. But our bodies are this sort of this other space where I think, in some ways, there are more possibilities. At the same time, they're also the site of where those violences are played out. So it's a very complicated narrative, but sympathy is a good word. I think sympathy is the angle that I'm coming from.
0: I really love how the book revolves around Wilhelm Reich and what you're talking about, trying to escape a binary which might be projected onto people. Is, is true because it is such an intersectional book. The reasons for people's discomfort, what Wilhelm Reich is really kind of grappling with, is, is never simply psychological, and I like how you don't reduce it to that. You know, there are other forces at play. The fact that Reich's patients were overwhelmingly working class, and their traumas were, as you say, not so much the consequence of childhood experience, but of social factors like poverty, poor housing, domestic violence, and unemployment. The way that Reich, and if you could talk about him for a bit, the way that he, he wrestles Freud and Marx into a, a cohesive methodology was pretty pioneering for his time.
1: The, the I didn't use the word intersectionality, but I think one of the things I sort of wanted to do with this book was show that those arguments around intersectionality go back so far that people have been thinking about these ideas for such a long time and that in some ways they're they're common sense you don't have to be frightened by the word intersectionality and think it's very academic or very modern or very woke that it, it really is just a sense of here is this set of oppressions related to this identity and here is this set of oppressions related to this identity and some people land in the middle ground and have both it's not that hard to understand is it um so Reich Reich is just this Visionary and pioneer, I think, in part because of his practicality. He he was Freud's most brilliant protégé. He was a soldier in the First World War and came to Vienna impoverished and desperately hungry for something to pour his um, considerable outsized energies into. And that thing turned out to be psychoanalysis. He began as a medical student, but psychoanalysis was where he placed his passions... And in those early days of psychoanalysis, there wasn't really a sense of what the cure was. There was a sense of what the practice might be, but not what what you actually were trying to achieve or attain. And Reich was an impatient person who found that very frustrating. And sitting there listening to his patients recount dreams, he began to feel that the action wasn't happening in what they were saying. The action was happening in their bodies. Their bodies were conveying something to him very clearly and with a huge amount of um emotion sent uh, he had the sense that they were telling him stories about terror about rage about submission that they couldn't possibly begin to articulate but their, their bodies were articulating for them and what he thought was that when children go through emotional experience they they're frequently told not to express those feelings and they lock them down inside their bodies they lock down expressions of anger they lock down expressions of sorrow they lock down expressions of shame which are often to do with sexuality and he thought that kind of lived on inside the body that as we were saying earlier the body becomes the repository or the container for these emotional experiences so that idea in itself is enormous but then he brings to it the sense that some of those sorrows, some of those rages aren't psychological in origin at all. They're actually coming from political and social circumstances. And they're, as you were saying, they're to do with overwork, they're to do with employment, they're to do with experiences of rape or domestic violence, all of which he had actual experience of. He he was seeing that in his patients, he came from a background of domestic violence in his family. He really understood the sense of what people are carrying round. And he also believed that it could be improved, that those things could be bettered. And I think that's where Wright becomes very exciting.
0: You, you say he's an impatient person. And it's interesting because there is something necessarily impatient about how we um, look at and treat justice issues. You talk about the, the 2000 concert, Nina Simone's 2000 concert in your book, where she repeats, no more time, no more time. And there's an interesting middle ground between impatience and optimism in your book and it is such an optimistic book. Do you think that optimism or or even utopianism is a necessary feeling to fight systemic injustice?
1: The, the book I'm writing now, all, all my books sort of come out of the last book and the book I'm writing now is about utopia because I feel like I sort of wrestled this um, positive ending out of the final moments of what, what's really quite a bleak book. Um, and then I wanted to think about what, what those utopias or freedoms might be, might look like or have looked like in the past. Um, I think it's essential that we have time for dreams that we think about what it is we want what kind of societies we want to build because otherwise we're always fighting rearguard action um i don't think that's the only thing that's important to do and i think if you do just spend all of your time fantasizing about utopias you end up being fairly ineffectual potentially but it seems to me it's a necessary part of the story and that that was part of the impetus with funny weather as well was was looking at people who rather than making paranoid work, we're making reparative work, we're thinking about other kinds of possibilities. So artists like Derek Jarman making the garden at Dungeness in the face of the AIDS crisis. It doesn't take the place of being an AIDS activist. It doesn't take the place of doing your time on the streets, but it's an, it runs alongside. It's, it's a sort of clear stream that feeds and nourishes. And I've, yeah, I think there's always got to be space for that kind of work.
0: It's in the, the title of your book, A Book About Freedom, is so urgent and decisive it almost reads like the title of a manifesto um, <laughs> did Did you feel like now was the time that there was a, a an urgency to this book that compelled you to write it um in response to what was happening around the world
1: good yes i, I mean absolutely and you know that that book began in 2015 and it's now 2021. So it's only got worse, really. I mean, in some ways, things are better because Trump is no longer in power in America. But um, the the sense, really, of the rise of the right and the rise of the various nationalisms around the globe, the, the um, rollback of civil liberties in country after country, none of that news has gone away. None of those storylines have gone away. So it did feel... Um, like it was written with urgency. And I also felt like I was writing it out of a sense of, you know, feeling, I was on Twitter a lot at the time and I was feeling very powerless and as if these stories were just rolling past me and I couldn't really, I felt horror at them or I felt despair or I wanted them to be resisted, but I didn't totally understand why they were happening. And everybody felt like um, I needed to turn round and look back into the 20th century and try and trace the deeper roots of why bodies are treated in these kind of ways. And what has happened with liberation struggles? Why have liberation struggles struggled? And is that, does that mean they're going wrong? Does that mean that something has happened, that a a misstep has happened? Or is that just the nature of liberation struggle in itself, in its essence? Um, And it felt, it felt important, you know, In a way it is a manifesto, but in a way also it felt important to do that kind of joined up, long range, long term rigorous thinking and try and assemble these stories almost as a toolkit for a generation that isn't mine, for a a younger generation as well, who perhaps don't know these stories or haven't experienced them with the same intimacy, you know. I'm old enough that I encountered Andrea Dworkin, and there's two generations now who don't have that direct sense of transmission with people in second wave feminism, or certainly the civil rights movement. And I think making those connections with the past is so important, or we just end up making the same mistakes over and over again.
0: There's so much to talk about, but I think what you just struck on is uh, the core of your book, this idea of liberation, and the contradiction at its heart. It's such a complicated Mm. and slippery and ambivalent thing. But about halfway through the book, uh, you say, freedom for whom? Is it the loosening of the reins on a repressive society's rules on sexuality? Or is it the freedom for people to speak up about the behavior that's permitted and whether it is harmful? And the idea that a transgression can either be radically good or radically bad, the violation of a set of boundaries either entailing freedom or crime. You know, Angela Carter says in the book, my freedom makes you more unfree. I wonder if you could talk about that, and uh, in particular the, the really fascinating clash between Andrea Dworkin and Angela Carter.
1: Yeah, to me that's really the heart of the book. Actually that Angela Carter line I think is really the heart of the book. That sense of freedom's very um, slippery and sometimes quite disturbing nature that freedom isn't necessarily a good thing. Freedom doesn't necessarily... Individualistic freedoms don't necessarily make a common freedom. And I think that's very uncomfortable for us to admit. And the way that I ended up investigating that was via the Marquis de Sade, who, you know, the libertine, the person who is so involved in our... 18th century rooted understanding of what liberty means and he was the subject of two really really interesting books in the 70s by Andrea Dworkin and Angela Carter written very close to each other and Andrea Dworkin goes on the attack the Marquis de Sade is a sexual terrorist he is the architect of rape culture he's a pornographer what he writes about is what he does this this is the sort of totalitarian vision of An, of Andrea Dworkin that um, I personally can find very disturbing. So she lays out this attack on him. And it, as with all Dworkin's writing, it's, it's uncanny and incantatory and extraordinary writing, but it's very total. It's a, it's a total attack. There's no room for ambiguity and there's no room for a sphere of the literary imaginary that's separate from the concrete and real. In comes Angela Carter a much more ambiguous, ambivalent, sinuous thinker and her account is much more about the pain of freedom. Her Saad is somebody who's interrogating what does freedom mean? What does total freedom mean? What would total freedom look like if this person, this libertine, has total freedom to do whatever he wants to these people's bodies? What's it going to look like? And what it looks like in 120 Days of Sodom and Justine is utter hell. It looks like a torture chamber. It looks like Idi means victims. And that sense of the pain of liberty or the cost of liberty feels to me so important to examine, but also so painful to admit. It's so much at the heart of a lot of the debates that we're having at the moment. And it feels, um, you know, worthy of that kind of anatomical scrutiny, I think.
0: I wonder if you could talk a bit about Oscar Wilde and Marquis de Sade's experience in prison and uh, the theory of sadism that imbricates with that.
1: Yeah, I wish I'd put more of Oscar Wilde in, really. Um, So I knew all along that this book sort of headed, it went through various experiences of bodily vulnerability towards the sense of imprisonment. It it follows loosely the narrative of Rag who ended up in a prison cell and who built a liberation machine that looked like a prison cell. So I, I had all along this sense of a person inside an isolation chamber as the sort of ultimate site of, of bodily degradation or, or bodily pain. And also that prison is a place that people involved in liberation struggles are sent to. Prison is this place that the individual who's struggling for freedom often ends up in. So I wanted to examine it in those terms. And it was really interesting to to come into contact with the ideas of prison as a site of liberation that the, the 18th century um, prison reformers had this sort of Quaker sensibility that meant they thought a prison cell could be almost like a monk cell, a place where somebody could awaken to the more moral life. And what that actually tended to mean was become a disciplined and humbled subject of capitalism, to to work within the prison and then to go outside and continue that work. And I sort of took Oscar Wilde as an example of what that process was like, that that humbling process was like, wearing the identical clothes and the leather hoods that meant you couldn't see other prisoners, this sight of utter solitude, utter separation from any kind of fellowship or or bodily communion. So Oscar Wilde exchanged a couple of words with another prisoner in the exercise field and was subject to extraordinary punishments. He ended up... His whole story is just so horrible. He had dysentery. He's lying on this bed that's like a plank. He was... Laboring and um, picking oakum, which is working with tarred rope, so his fingers were swelling and bleeding, and you you just have the sense of you know this extraordinary person, but also just this person like other people being subject to these violences, and in Wilde's case because of his sexuality, because because of his sexual desires, and because of his sexual actions, so prison is very much this place that liberty is. In interrogation, you you can look at it as a site where all kinds of ideas about liberty are going on. And, of course, the Marquis de Sade was a prisoner. He spent a huge amount of his life in prison. He wrote 120 Days of Sodom in the Bastille under the similar kinds of incarceration that Malcolm X describes doing his reading in um, The Liberation of the Autobiography of Malcolm X. So Tiny snatches where there's light using that moment in order to write a narrative or to read. They're both having that sense of these are these small windows of opportunity. And it's so interesting to look at Saad's work instead of thinking of it just about sexual violence or misogyny, to think about it as incarceration. What happens to the body in incarceration? It is subject to unbearable need in Saad's work the body is continually punished for its needs, its needs for breath, its need for food, its need for water, its need to defecate, all of these different things were actually sites of terror for him in in imprisonment.
0: Language plays such an interesting role in prison and in, in isolation. And about halfway through, you introduce Andrea Dworkin and her writing about her experience of domestic abuse. And she says that language is crucial, not only in communicating a certain injustice, but in allowing the victim to feel heard, you quote her saying, Once you lose language, your isolation becomes absolute. I wonder if you could talk a bit about that disjuncture between violation and language
1: It's it's really um as when I was reading that I immediately thought of um Lavinia in Titus Andronicus the, the rape victim who has her hands and tongue cut off and writes her attacker's name in the sand with a stick and that that sense of having to convey what has been done having to convey violation and that not being heard being a doubling a a multiplication of the kind of violence that has already been done and as Dworkin says you you the need to be heard and witnessed in the situation that's happening is so overwhelming and what happens so often what happens to Dworkin is that need isn't met. Dworkin couldn't get anyone to believe her, neighbours wouldn't believe her, the police wouldn't believe her, hospitals wouldn't believe her. Despite the evidence of both her speech and her body it was clear that she was being beaten, people could hear that she was being beaten. That sense I think of the kind of silencing she went through is what drives her ongoingly through her career so she was a secondary feminist who really wrote about misogyny and sexual violence unstintingly and the more she wrote and the more she spoke about it the more she heard about it so the more witness accounts she received and carried with her and I think that accounts for the sort of totalizing effect of Dworkin's writing. She isn't here to talk about nuance, she isn't here to talk about ambiguity. She is here as a both witness and prosecutor to a global crime that is unreported. I think that's that's the best way to understand her writing and her writing style. And she is trying to find a language that cannot be unheard I think that also is important to understand with her writing style she says she had to go hard she had to find something that was as terrifying as disturbing as distressing as the things that she was writing about as rape as incest as as sexual violence as torture and she managed to do it that's the extraordinary thing about her writing sorry that's the extraordinary thing about her writing is that she does find this language that you might not agree with her but you can't um you can't deny the power of it.
0: They're so compelling because they're they're really articulate and they're not just fighting to make themselves heard, they're they're also amplifying the experiences of, of women who continue to be silenced. And as inspiring as that role of leadership is, it's also terrifying and that's part of the frustration, the fact that it's falling on deaf ears, but the fact that the opposition refuses to appreciate the emotional turmoil that this must put the person who speaks out in. You write that Dworkin became the repository of thousands of women's stories. I mean, the, the the pressure, the the psychic toll that that must have is unimaginable.
1: Absolutely, and at the same time, you know, she's she's not an uncomplicated figure. I did an event with um, the activist and writer Sarah Shulman recently, and you know, Sarah's the same generation as Andrea Dworkin, and was saying, you know, I think you gave her kind of an easy ride that because she was so adamant that um, anti-porn censorship was the way to go she made alliances with people on really the far right and brought in an ordinance in Canada that meant many queer people's books were banned including Sarah Shulman's and she was involved in a court case against her so I I think it's important to remember as with many of the figures in this book that Dworkin is really complicated not necessarily likable and elements of her work I absolutely disagree with but at the same time there are other elements that are so useful and burningly true but even the ones that aren't are still available to be thought about and to be assessed and to make sense of within the kind of larger cultural arguments that she's working in
0: I want to talk about Susan Sontag for a bit because I love Sontag and I was so pleased when I saw her listed on the blurb of the kind of dream team of characters. Um, And there's a great Sontag line which you quote and which ends up as the title of her second volume of Diaries, as consciousness is harnessed to flesh. There's a sense of unwillingness from (laughs) Susan Sontag to, at certain points, accept her body as a thing which is married to her mind. And both Sontag and Kathiaka find refuge in their intellect. You write of Acker, she observed that part of her diagnosis um, was that it reduced her to a body that was solely material. And you refer to the logic of illness as metaphor as, at points, a kind of magical thinking Sontag invented as a child. And she has this obstinate refusal to accept, as you put it, the, the fact of a limited lifespan.
1: I, I admire Sontag in all of this. I think there's such a perversity about it. I do think she, her son says this, she genuinely thought that perhaps somebody didn't need to die. And if somebody didn't need to die, it was probably going to be Susan Sontag. <laughs> that just really appeals to me. And. Um, but she's sort of at at war with her body and when you read the diaries you you feel the sense of this quite passionate war being waged against needing to be reduced to a body you know she as a child she was asthmatic so she had a sense already of the body as a frightening place to be her father died in mysterious circumstances and there was always an uncertainty over whether he was really dead, whether that had actually happened or whether there'd been some sort of sleight of hand. And this this resurfaces in lots of her stories as an adult. Um, I think her queerness and her sense of being closeted, her sense of herself as something repulsive, and again, she she had a very, um, not violent, but aggressive and um, punitive mother who who made her feel an awful lot of shame. And I think... These these things sort of got di- displaced onto the body which she could then leave behind. And she did that in very visceral ways. She ignored the need to sleep, she ignored the need to eat, she wouldn't wash herself. R- right through her life she found washing herself or brushing her hair something that she just didn't have time for. She was too busy living. Even sex was something that she didn't really want to engage in until she acknowledged what her sexual inclination was and found the orgasm in in later life and all the way through you're having the sense of her wrestling with reich thinking about reich reading reich writing in reichian terms and the the consciousness harness to flesh is in a riff where she's really thinking about reich's ideas of how frustrating it is that we're trapped in these bodies when our minds are so wayward and enormous and moody and changeable and our bodies are so solid and small in a way they have to contain so much and they're so inflexible and i th- i think that's smarted that frustrated her and then she got cancer she became ill and was plunged into the life of the body in painful and terrifying ways and she wrote illness' as metaphor as this very sort of cool Sontagian account of how illness is just illness it's just material fact it, it doesn't have anything to do with our emotional lives our bodies and our emotions are separate but this isn't what Sontag the person really thought this isn't the accounting that she gives in her diaries all the way through her diary she's she really is wrestling with the idea that her emotional life and her emotional history have led to her cancer that how she is handling her cancer but also the experience of it have roots in her own private domestic erotic life, especially her relationship with her mother. And this is where I came to Acker, who similarly had cancer, breast cancer at around the same age, who came from a similar wealthy New York Jewish background, and who came on the subject of cancer from a totally different angle. She couldn't bear the idea that the mind and body were separate. She didn't want to be material. She didn't want to have to think about illness in those terms. What she wanted to do was use it as a trapdoor, an elevator that took her down into her most regressed, most locked away emotional secrets. She wanted to make contact with those places, and she believed that if she did, she would ascend in a state of health, which didn't happen. She died very young. so these, these two women's stories, both, you know, both of them incredibly intelligent and extraordinarily innovative in their work, they, they seem to me the perfect people to draw into this conversation about what illness means to us, what kind of sense we make of illness and what kind of sense we make of how separate or how entangled our bodies and emotional lives are.
0: And with Sontag in particular, there's a really discomforting, sense that she is not okay with the fact that she's ill and, and her own, her queerness also can be viewed in those terms. There's, in, in, towards her early life there's this inadmissible lesbianism that, that, that amounts almost to a self-disgust. Y- you say the lesson was this stay away from bodies and for a book which is so celebratory that she's such an interesting character to involve because of her own for want of a better word insecurities
1: I think that's I think that's true, and um, and that seems to me very human as well to have to have those sort of insecurities and to have those sort of fears, and she, you know it was such a it was such a point of contention in the gay community that Sontag was never publicly out. People knew that she was gay, but that she wasn't willing to stake that claim especially during the AIDS crisis and that she was writing about the AIDS crisis AIDS and its metaphors without saying this is my community this is a community I'm part of was distressing for many people and yet of course in the same way as Agnes Martin who I write about later in the book everybody has the right not to claim a sexual identity to choose that silence is the identity that they want to have that they don't need to um enter into groups or mass bodies that some people find it liberating to inhabit and other people really don't. So I, I wanted to leave space for people to have these sort of wayward choices. Everybody doesn't have to um, join the same liberation movement. And that, that was really why I put Agnes Martin in the book as well, that because her liberation movement isn't something that scales up. It's completely private. It's It's about abstraction and silence. And it makes the closet into a site of liberation in a way that I personally wouldn't agree with but I love that Martin does it and I think there's there's lots of commonalities between her and Sontag.
0: Agnes Martin occupies a really interesting role, the kind of lone wolf of the book. <laughs> Could you talk a bit about how she fits in and 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 how, how she lives her life as this escapee from the city?
1: it's escapee from the city but it's sort of escapee from everything she finds you know i t- talk all the time about this kind of grid of ideas about gender and sexuality and class and race that that affect our bodies and that we get entangled in and often maimed by damaged by destroyed by and martin was a gay woman living in america at a time of extraordinary homophobia this is this is the lavender scare when there was a witch hunt um similar to parallel with the red scare that chased down communists that was chasing down gay people in um government employment but it went wider than that it it had um tendrils into healthcare and medicine and all sorts of things so agnes martin is somebody who exists in a um, a very contentious time with an identity that makes her at risk and she, she knew that her partners talk about how she was very aware of that and what she chose was silence self-denial um, and an escape from the material she limits the kind of food that she eats. she refused not just to be identified as a lesbian but to be identified as a woman at all she <laughs> there's a lovely interview where somebody says something to her about how do you feel as a woman artist and she says I'm not a woman I'm a doorknob and that's Agnes Martin she's busting those categories up she's not she's not going to enter into those categories and part of the reason I put her in the book is that she paints grids she paints these containers that look when you're standing up close like rigid little boxes you take a step back and they turn into these gauzy um webs of color pulsating flags of a new republic of liberation and ease and that trick that she pulls off that ability to turn what is concrete and solid and oppressive into openness space and abstraction felt to me really important and at the same time she is also trying to appeal to people's bodies she she made her canvases 6 by 6 the size of a human body so that it would feel as if a person looking at them could walk directly into the world of her canvas this this world of love and happiness and warmth that many of us struggle to find in day-to-day life so she she's definitely the outlier of the book but her mapping of the possibilities felt both idiosyncratic and intensely liberatory to me and I wanted to have her there to be it's not just liberation movements that are mass movements it's it's also a personal route out a personal way of dodging oppression that feels handmade so strange so deliberately unusual and i just remain so fascinated by martin
0: Her grids are amazing. They're they're so delicately constructed and aesthetically pleasing but there's something so ironic about them. The grid is the motif of the city and there's almost this resentfulness for the control that it represents, the control the city holds over people and it can be frightening and when I first saw her paintings I kind of felt this sadness at leaving it behind as well and Mm. All, all of the figures in in your book make a choice. It seems either to retaliate or to escape. And for Martin, escape is not defeatist but determined. And they're all engaging with the world, brazenly, defiant, and vulnerable as bodies pushed to the extreme.
1: I think that's I think that's true. I think it, it's so. There are so many different strategies for how to handle the state we find ourselves in. And Martin's one is an unusual one, but at the same time, it's very, gen- you know, you can think of her as the hermit who escapes, but at the same time, she's making material that remains for us as these small scale sites of liberation anyway. And that that sense of generosity perhaps underpins the book.
0: I mean, just as an aside, I, I read it um, unnervingly, quite recently, quite close to the wire. Um, but I was so thrilled, Olivia, when I, when I read it, because these are the people who are really resurging, I think, and um, Sontag and Anna Mendieta, you know, you can't see it, but right now there's an, an Anna Mendieta picture above my desk. Oh, and, wow. Um, that's oh, the one. well,
1: that's the one I wanted on the cover. Really? Yeah, that you was my dream. Have. I know, the, Men- <laughs> the Mendieta estate is very difficult, so it wasn't possible, but that was the one that I really loved.
0: I actually thought when Funny Weather was coming out that I just misread an Instagram post and I thought Funny Weather was all about Anna Mendieta and I was like, whoa, here we go. (laughs) (laughs) And so I've been waiting for everybody for so long. (laughs) um, Oh, good. (laughs) I I think that's a really good place to end and I'd like to thank Olivia for talking to us today. It's been a real pleasure. Um, We hope to see you in the bookshop in person as soon as possible.
1: It has been so lovely to talk to you, so I've really appreciated it.
0: Everybody, a book about freedom is available from Sandoz at £20. Olivia's very kindly signed a number of copies, so please call, email or order through our website if you'd like one. Olivia, thank you very much.
1: Thank you. While I just sit here and sigh, go long blue.